0: Listening to Contact High, a podcast from Mishkan Chicago, exploring inspired, down-to-earth Judaism in conversation. Today, we're bringing you a bonus episode in observance of the upcoming holiday of Tisha B'Av. This holiday is often considered the saddest day on the Jewish calendar, as it commemorates many points of pain in Jewish history: the destruction of both the First Temple, also called Solomon's Temple, by the Neo-Babylonian Empire and the second temple by the Roman Empire in Jerusalem over 2,000 years ago, as well as many other expulsions and communal losses over the past two millennia. Through fasting and reading Eh Echa or Lamentations, Tishubaav offers space for grief and despair, and, as most things Jewish, it invites us to reconsider the ground we stand on, and how our history teaches us lessons we can apply to our lives and world today. The Talmud offers many different explanations for why the temple in Jerusalem fell, but one of them is that we got lazy interpreting and updating our laws to uplift and support one another, and as a result, the system itself decayed from the inside. Judaism holds justice at its core as a tradition. It always has, it always will. Yet there are many different ways to address the deep and systemic inequalities in our society, Through Mishkan's organizing work, we are able to be allies and partners with people and organizations doing the hard work of changing those systems. For this episode, considering our upcoming holiday of Tisha B'Av, we want to introduce you to some of the people doing justice work at Mishkan. In today's episode, Rabbi Lizzie is in dialogue with guests Anna Gabler and Joe Grant both of whom are part of our economic justice efforts. Joe, as a community member and lay leader, and Anna, as the economic justice organizer for One Northside, a mixed-income, multi-ethnic, intergenerational organization that unites diverse communities throughout Chicago. As you listen, we invite you to consider your own relationship with the systemic injustices of our city and country, and how you might want to get involved, whether at Mishkan or beyond, joining hands to create the world you believe is possible. Here's the conversation.
1: Welcome, Anna Gabler and Joe Grant, to Contact High. It is an honor and a pleasure to get to sit with you in this way today. Um, You both are leaders in the world of justice and organizing at Mishkan and beyond Mishkan. Anna Gabler is an organizer at One North Side and Joe Grant, you're also an organizer sort of on the lay side, on the community member side here at Mishkan. And I'm so excited to be in conversation with you today exploring why, why we do this work. Why this matters, what this is about. I think it's intriguing and important to so many people, and yet so many people don't show up for the meetings that you run. So, like, I'm just curious to start, first of all, by asking a little bit about how you got into this. So, Anna, you are a professional organizer. First of all, what does that mean? What, like, what does it mean that you're
2: an organizer, and how did you get into it? Well, so good to be with you, Rabbi Lizzie and Joe, to be here talking all things economic justice and organizing. Community organizing is about bringing people together to make social change. It sounds so simple, uh, and yet it's certainly an uphill battle, especially in these times. But community organizing is really based on the value that everyday people who are directly affected by decisions made by our government at the city and state level are really the experts on their own experiences and are closest to the solutions that we need to solve some of the problems that we're facing. Essentially, we believe in everyday people being at the forefront of movements for social change. In practice, that means we work to advance legislation and policy at the city and state level, and that that policy is, again, shaped by people in our communities. So social service agencies, people of faith, uh, renters, parents, teachers are are sort of the core base of our work, and we believe that by bringing people together and developing people 's leadership, we can really advance some of these solutions um, that feel kind of almost impossible, but with enough people and enough power make them happen
1: and how did How did you get into this like what led you to think that you could organize people to make change in government? Like, how, how did you get into this work? Yeah, so I,
2: I grew up in the area. I grew up in Oak Park, uh, which is a very liberal sort of place to grow up. And that was certainly my parents' values. So I was definitely instilled with values of equality and justice and fairness. Um, but growing up, I certainly didn't have sort of an understanding around how to actually make change. I remember growing up and listening to my parents talk about the Iraq war and how harmful war was and feeling so powerless as, as a young person. Um, And I also remember learning, you know, like the really important Jewish value of Tzedakah, but it being conceptualized for me as charity or giving back or moving resources Um, which again felt so important, but also somehow incomplete of how do we change these big systems that are creating harm. Um, So it wasn't until I was in college that I started getting involved in some activism on my campus um, and ultimately was core part of a student organizing group that organized around economic justice, specifically around better working conditions and pay and wages for the workers on our campus.
1: Thank you, Joe, uh, what about you? Yeah, I, I
3: um, got into organizing um, first as a graduate student at Northwestern. When I was in graduate school there, the National Labor Relations Board ruled that graduate employees at private universities were eligible to unionize, and so I got involved in the effort to organize a grad workers union um, at Northwestern. I'm no longer uh, in school there, but the the unionization campaign is ongoing. This is now, I think, six years, six years later. Um, And that was the first time, you know, I'd been politically engaged in various ways um, before then, you know, signing petitions and, and going to rallies and things like that. Um, But that was the first time I'd really, really taken on a leadership role in an organizing campaign. And it was also the first time I had worked on any kind of organizing or politics where I felt like, oh, this is something where it's very clear, like, how the outcome will impact me. Like, if we win this union, like, my life as a grad student will will be better. The lives of the graduate workers who come after me um, will be better. And I think that was a very sort of impactful and politicizing uh,
1: experience for me how did that translate to uh, i mean you 've been coming to Mishkan for almost a decade now, almost as long as the community 's been around i mean that 's true right? I feel like i 've known you from almost the beginning, yeah,
3: and I think you know to to your question about about organizing at Mishkan, i mean I think for you know at least for the first few years, I really like my organizing and political life was very separate from my my Jewish spiritual life and from my life at Mishkan. Um, and I think when that, that really started to change was after the 2016 election, and that was another moment where I, where I felt, you know, I felt the, the personal stakes of our political situation in a way that I hadn't before, and feeling like, oh, like, this is really bad for me as a Jewish person. Um, and not just bad in general, or like bad for other people. So yeah, that was sort of the catalyst, and I so I came to Mishkan, Had a, you know, we were we were all freaking out, as you remember, and also like, I mean, I speaking for myself, I was like, wow, I really just need to be in a place that's full of Jews right now, who like I won't have to explain why this is scary to, and like that's part of why this community
1: is so important to me, really. That's that's so powerful, and I mean like that really describes, honestly, what community I think is about and what Jewish community is about. It's about, like, having for sure shared history. And part of that shared history is shared values. And and then that, like, leverages us to do something in the world, you know. And then it's like, okay, well, what? And I think, you know, at different times, different – different ways of manifesting those values have have felt differently resonant. And over the past couple of years, especially, I mean, we're, we're here today talking about economic justice. I think income inequality and lack of, you know, just like the enormous disparity in access to, you know, any number of Things that should just be human rights, like education and health care and, you know, like fair and affordable housing. And these things have just become, even though they were always, always issues, they've been issues since the Torah, you know, differences in, in access to resources. But like this is something the Torah is obsessed with, this problem. How have you chosen the campaigns that we collectively have worked on?
3: It feels very, it often feels very overwhelming, the work we're trying to do. It can feel very overwhelming and it can feel like, where do I even begin? And I think, you know, from the conversations I've had with people at MishCon and and elsewhere, I think that this is often can be a major, it can be a big obstacle for people. And it was a big obstacle for me, I think, earlier in my life, feeling like, where would I even begin And I think one of the things that that has been so valuable about getting involved in community organizing and and with with One North Side is this, again, as Anna was saying, like, you can break this into more manageable pieces. Um, And even more than that, I think it's the idea that you don't have to figure out which is the most important thing objectively. Because there isn't an answer to that question. All you have to do is figure out what's something that's really important to me and that would make me really excited to work on and where I would feel like my life in the world would be better if we won this thing. And that for me also has made it much easier to be like, it's okay for me to work on economic justice. And if that means I'm not working on something else, that's okay. That's okay.
1: You're reminding me of the text um you've probably heard this one but from Pirkei Avot that says you're not on the hook to finish the task but neither are you free to ignore it. You know, lo alecha hamlachalek Like you don't have to finish the work but you can't ignore it. You can't not be involved. I want to I want to um turn our conversation to the Jewish calendar. We're, we're in the midst right now of, of what's called the three weeks, and we're about to be in the midst of the nine days. I think when this podcast comes out, we'll be before Tisha B'Av, but the nine days leads into Tisha B'Av, and it's basically like nine sad days leading into the saddest day on the Jewish calendar, you know, the, the only other 24-hour fast day on the, on the Jewish calendar other than Yom Kippur. But whereas Yom Kippur is like, it's sort of like a really optimistic fast, Tisha B'Av is a a really sad one, and it's sad because it remembers loss and pain and, uh, you know, the destruction of a structure, a, a particular structure, the temple, that was actually kind of a symbol for an entire way of life, culture, people that, like, kind of came crashing down and that that was sad and hard. That was sad and hard, and we remember it on this day. That said, You and I are still here. We're all still here having this conversation. So actually, the culture was not destroyed. It was rebuilt. And it was rebuilt better and more resilient and more flexible and more portable and more egalitarian. And um, the idea of a priesthood and sort of social hierarchy built into the religion kind of, you know, became largely symbolic and taken out like Judaism completely transformed on the basis of actually this this day that we commemorate as full of loss and pain. it's the beginning of the recreation of society um, towards something that's actually better and more um like much more egalitarian and and much more human, you know much more owned by the people, sort of by the people and for the people that's the the Judaism we practice now is is like that instead of run largely by powerful priests, which was like the way it was 2000 years ago. So I guess my question is like, here comes this holiday. That's what it symbolizes. Like, what did what I just say kind of bring up for you in terms of like, what what does that reflect? What does that symbolize, remind you of, make you think of right now, you know, in terms of the things you're working on?
3: Tisha B'Av for me is not a holiday that I did anything to Mark or even was aware of as a child. It was only something that I began to participate in as an adult. And I think it's an incredibly beautiful and powerful holiday. And it's one of the holidays that makes me proudest to be Jewish. Because I think it is really, in the world that we live in, it is unfortunately rare to have a space that is only about mourning our losses and really allowing ourselves to feel the depth of sadness of things that cannot be recovered, the losses that cannot be recovered. And to feel, to be able to like create a space for that grief, I think is just incredibly powerful and in many ways, totally subversive, especially in light of what has happened and is happening now with respect to the COVID-19 pandemic in this country and really how little opportunity there has been for public mourning and public acknowledgement of just how much so many of us have lost.
2: Yes, it's making me think of, there's a phrase, and I don't know who to attribute it to, I'll have to look, I've heard in different organizing spaces that's like we mourn for the dead and we fight like hell for the living, (laughs) which is what you're bringing up, Joe. I think what comes up for me is the mourning associated with acceptance that a lot of our systems are broken or they're functioning as they should be in a very broken way. And The mourning that comes with accepting that we must leave behind some of these systems and build new ones. And I think in our economic justice work, something we've learned time and time again is just that the way to create thriving communities is to invest in people, invest in our public institutions, invest in services, and create a real sense of neighborhood and community safety. Um, And so I think for me... This brings up just the question of like, so harmful, punitive systems that have been like a normalized part of my life for so long and that I think there's been, especially after the uprisings last year, just a rising public, public consciousness that we might have to consider fundamentally leaving behind parts of these systems and building new ones to bring us towards the the world that we wanna be living in, like the world that we wanna share with our community and our neighbors. And the the tension that comes with that for for a lot of us, especially as someone who grew up white, middle-class in a suburb. So I think that sort of transition and idea of leaving behind and building anew is what comes up for me with this metaphor.
1: Something something. Rabbi B'nai Lappi talks about, actually, she, she talks about, like, the crash, you know, and, and rebuilding from the crash and what you take from the before times and what you're inventing sort of in, in the new times. And that, like, for the first generation, maybe the first two generations, in the, in the time when you're kind of recreating the future, it, like, probably won't feel quite right. You know, there'll be a lot of kinks to work out. You'll feel sort of like... You don't know exactly like where is the tradition that we're standing on where, you know, am I doing it right? Is this what it's supposed to look like? And that's actually what's supposed to happen. You know, like that uncertainty is still better than what we had before, you know, than like all all of the harm that came with what, what was there before. So better that we should be recreating and like actually living in that uncertainty and playing in it and sort of growing through it such that our grandchildren will then recognize like, oh, my gosh. How on earth did those people in the before times do it that way? This way makes so much more sense. This is this is the real tradition, which is of course like that's how people feel about Judaism now. Like it's hard for me to imagine that ever at some point this religion was men slaughtering goats or something as a spiritual practice that I was supposed to benefit from. It's interesting to think about, but I'm so glad that things have changed. And, but they changed because of people, as you described, sort of like from the ground up in like caves and classrooms and living rooms, having conversations about how to change their reality. Um, and it took a long time. It took a long time. So, all right, here's my last question for you in the midst of, you know, the long time that this all takes, you know, um, how do you... How do you carry hope? How do you stay hopeful? How do you how do you believe that winning is possible? You know, how do you stay in the work day in and day out?
3: I think for me, I, there's a couple of things I would say. I mean, the first thing and this goes back to something kind of a thread that's been weaving through the whole conversation is this this point about community and relationships. So, you know, when we think about organizing, we think about things like Trying to pass legislation, having rallies, making phone calls, canvassing, meeting with legislators. At the core of everything we do is really building strong and trusting relationships with each other, because that is what allows us to take risks on each other's behalf. Small risks like knocking on a stranger's door or calling someone you don't know. And bigger risks like risking arrest in an act of civil disobedience. And also it's those relationships really that can, for, for me, that's what sustains me in this work when it feels like the, the future that we're imagining is really very, very far away. Ralph Ellison and um, Gordon Parks did a collaboration around uh, of photography and text sort of loosely related to Ellison's novel Invisible Man, although a lot of it was also just about um, life in Harlem. Uh, there was an exhibit at the Art Institute several years ago of some of the photographs and, and texts that that Ellison had wrote um, that hadn't been published before. And there's an there was an one piece of the exhibit that has really traveled with me, and it's an it's an image taken from a psychiatric hospital in Harlem of a black man sitting in a chair with his hands on his knees and his face in his hands. And the text that Ellison wrote is, the, the mission of the clinic is to transform despair, not into hope, but into determination. And I think that's like, that's one of my organizing mantras that just carries me through this, um, because we don't know what the future is like. All we can do is fight to make it be the one that we deserve. And that's it.
2: I love that, Joe. I do not have anywhere near as beautiful a quotation as that to add on here. But I will say, you know, I was going to say the same thing, Joe, for me in this work, uh, you know, it is it is the central part of my life. It is what I do. It is how I spend my energy and my labor. And it's hard. And a lot of what keeps me going in the spirit of determination are the people And this sense of accountability and love for the people in our One North Side community, and just knowing how deeply we have each other's back, is really what keeps me going because I think what can make me feel not hopeful is feeling alone in this. And that's when things feel very overwhelming. And the relationships are kind of the balm for that feeling of aloneness. And I think also what gives me hope is, to your point, Joe, history. People have done this before. People have come together. They have built solidarity across difference. They have mobilized in gigantic ways. And yes, this is very much a unique moment. And it's a new era. And also, we don't have to reinvent the wheel. Our ancestors knew how to do this. And we can know, too. And in my moments of darkness where it just seems like the headlines are just so painful to read and it feels like there's nothing good, I try to grasp onto that.
1: Thank you so much, Anna and Joe, for being part of this conversation, I feel like truthfully we just began to scratch the surface and we could be here for another couple of hours, you know, getting into hardball questions about policy and about, you know, different different versions of bills and, different, you know, like how you decide what to, what to put forth and what to fight for. And um, I hope we continue to have those conversations over Shabbat dinners and lunches in person over the months and years to come. I want to thank you for um, helping manifest Judaism's deep-seated value of tzedek, justice, and tzedakah, doing justice with your money, with your time, with your energy, and helping bring more people into this work. Thank you. Likewise.
2: Thank you so much.
3: Thank you. It's so wonderful to talk to you, Rabbi Lizzie.
0: been listening to Contact High, a podcast from Mishkan Chicago, a Jewish spiritual community and part of the Jewish Emergent Network. If you enjoyed this episode, we encourage you to reach out to Rabbi Dina at rabbidina at mishkanchicago.org for more information about economic justice work with your Mishkan community. If you'd like to learn more about Tisha B'Av, you can go back and listen to our series from last year, featuring conversations with spiritual leaders Pasta J. Brooks, B'nai Lappi, and Lola Wright. To support Contact High, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Reviews improve our ratings, which helps new listeners find our show. This episode was produced by our fabulous team at Mishkan. Editing and production of this podcast is by Hannah Rehack. Administrative assistance by me, Zach Weinberg, Rabbinic Insight provided by Rabbis Lizzie Heidemann and Dina Cowens, and Editorial Oversight by Director of Communications Ashley Donahue. Find out more about Mishkan Chicago at mishkanchicago.org, where you can also make a donation, and where you can find more information about joining us for High Holidays 5782. <music>